I'm Tommy Salmons. This is year zero. Good morning, happy listeners. I'm sure all of y'all are extremely happy. Um, Right now it's 3 o'clock in the morning on Thursday morning. I'm driving up through Oklahoma. Got to make a stop in Joplin. Then I got to get up to Kansas City. I, uh, as you know, most of you know, I am a truck driver. I drive a truck as my day job. It does not leave me a whole lot of time. Sometimes it leaves me speechless (laughs) because it's so freaking dull and boring a lot of the time. But one of the things I see as a truck driver is the extreme consumerism of the country. And I see it from a distribution standpoint. And it and it makes me think about a lot of things. About necessity versus desire. It makes me think about supply versus demand. And it's been an economic argument whether or not demand creates supply or supply creates demand. Now, I I find it to be a mixed bag. I can find arguments for both sides. Um, Let's just say like in the the 1980s, there was no demand for an iPhone because there was no supply of iPhones. Nobody knew what an iPhone was. Therefore, nobody was demanding it. Yet, on the other hand, if there is no supply of food, it's not going to stop the demand for food. If there's no supply of clean water, it's not going to stop the demand for clean water. So there's this kind of mixed bag when it comes to necessity and desire, supply and demand. And the other day, I come out to work on Monday. I jump in my truck. I drive from Orange, Texas to Pasadena, Texas. Go to Nestle Waters bottling facility. Well, it's not a bottling facility. It's a warehouse in Pasadena. Then I turn around. And I drive to Harvey, Louisiana, a suburb of New Orleans. And I go to a Costco. And I enter the Costco warehouse while they're unloading my truck. And I'm just sitting there looking around the warehouse. And I'm looking at this supply that they have the supply of needless objects 
there's a 52 inch flat screen TV about, I don't know, I'd say about 30 foot in the air on a, on a rack just sitting up there. There are pallets upon pallets, paper towels, paper cups, um, dog food, uh, water, Red Bull, any number of items that you may see in the store. And if you walk out onto the showroom, onto the floor, where the shoppers go around and fill their buggies with items, there's countless numbers of items in the store. And it gets me thinking to about my point of view of the United States versus the average person's point of view, what what some people call normies. I, I find that to be pejorative, so I don't typically call people normies because, you know, what what's wrong with handling your own business and, and not really looking around at how other people are affected um, in a world that, especially the United States, it's so busy, it's 24-7, go, go, go. You ever been to a big city, you realize that there's no slowdown in traffic, really. Um, you can drive around Houston at 3 o'clock in the morning. You get on 610, and you're going to see cars all around you. You're going to see trucks moving. There's freight everywhere. Even out here in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, I don't go, I haven't gone two miles without seeing another truck carrying something, some load of some material in either direction. And I made a comment at the end of the last podcast that I understand that people, why people don't pay attention to the evils that the country involves itself in. So I'm going to attempt to verbalize what I see as a huge disconnect between quote-unquote normies and those of us that are quote-unquote radicals. Now, I'm going to use the term conservative pretty loosely here. Um, I'm, I'm, okay, so let me clarify. 
in in the pamphlet left and right the prospects for liberty Murray Rothbard describes socialism as centrism he also describes conservatism as the right and anarchism or minarchism depending on how you want to look at it as the left okay so what i am what i'm doing is i'm conglomerating into the same mixed bag any person that is interested in preserving or growing government versus those of us that are looking to shrink or abolish government. And, and so, so I might use the word, might use the term right, and that's because socialists are to the right of my belief system. I know that doesn't make sense in modern political dialogue because everybody is considering either Democrats or progressives as the left, but they are to the right of me and to the right of people that are thinking along the lines that I'm thinking. I think it was Walter Block said that anarchists are like the third leg because we don't belong on the left or the right anymore. We, we're just kind of like off there floating in our own little little place. We're like a bone spur just kind of floating around in the anatomy of this body politic that we, that we try to examine. Given that I'm 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 examining this and and trying to verbalize what it is that I see, this episode will probably be choppier. It's gonna be a little bit more of me thinking as I speak. So to those of you who do not like slow talking, go ahead and put me on two times speed or whatever you got to do. And uh, we'll make this, uh, try to make this as painless as possible for yourself. Hello, Pinky. You need to get in your chair, buddy. Um, he, I'm talking, so he thinks that I, that I want to get pay him attention. So he comes and lays his head in my lap while I'm driving. Um, Anyway, back on track. Okay, let me see. All right, so the right of, to the right of anarchism is constitutionalism, is even the Articles of Confederation, which is far left. So you got, you have anarchism to the far left, you have 
the Articles of Confederation, you have constitutionalism. Then along the path, you have socialism. And even further right, you have conservatism. And then beyond that, you, you find um, more authoritarian methods of, you know, let's say fascism along those lines. And even the, even the more authoritarian, like Leninist, are, are further right, I would say, than conservatives. Um, honestly, I think the further right you go, the more collective your thought process becomes. So you could say there's a toss up on the right. In my my way of thinking, there's a toss up to the right between conservatism and socialism. I don't see them as very far apart because they're both very interested in the general welfare and they're both very interested in preserving power into the centralized organization now there are mutualists and voluntarists and different flavors of anarchy that we can debate at at some point and where they and where they line up but just for the for the cases of this conversation, for the basis of this conversation, we're going to move everything that is collectivist and centralized to the right. So the more centralized that things are, the further right we're going to be looking, right? So maybe maybe a better term is to use the term centralized government in, in this in this conversation. But what I'm looking at is when I'm sitting in a Costco or when I'm, as I am today, hauling around 44,000 pounds of Red Bull, I'm, I'm thinking, what? how do people continuously overlook the deaths that are caused by government and continuously either either um, adhere to the status quo or promote e- even further centralization of government power. And it's almost, it, it brings you back to an economic argument of incentive structures. So when these people's incentive structure is to go about their daily lives. And what is their daily lives? They consume. They're looking to consume. They're, they're, they're looking for the most comfort that they can possibly find in their, in their daily lives. They go to the grocery store. Their shelves are full. They have a roof over their head. They have a job. They may have slowdowns at work, but they don't lose their job because they slow down. They might, they might be an hourly employee that gets overtime, you know, six months of the year. And six months of the year, they're working 40 hours a week. Right? They might be 
sweeping floors rather than repairing a machine. They might be experiencing a slowdown in sales um, due to economic factors. They may not be able to afford to install a pool in their backyard. But what they what they understand and what the, the way that their mind is structured is their daily lives, their their week in and week out lives are not negatively affected by the growth of government. They don't see the growth of government as as a negative or as a necessary evil. They just view it as in in a realistic or a practical sense, it just is. There's nothing we can do about it. There we can't stop it. These people in Washington keep going there and keep acting in a retarded fashion, but for the most part, nothing they do is affecting me on a day-to-day basis. I don't see a shortage of food. I don't see the effects of militarized police. I don't see the FBI invading my privacy. I don't see the NSA collecting my metadata. I don't see the CIA overthrowing governments. I don't see the destruction of drones in the Middle East. I don't see these things. And because they don't see it, they don't experience these negative outputs from the government, they don't care to engage in attempting to change the government. They see no reason to change the government. They, they view it as, well, those, those people are going to do what they're going to do. I have to take care of me. I can't be concerned and stressed out over the possibility that these people are going to do something corrupt or something evil. Our justice system will handle that. It's not for me to worry about. It's not for me to hold them to account. They don't know that, that I think, I believe it was, um, the head of the FBI, I mean, the head of the CIA is, is on record as saying that our job is not complete until all of the American, everything the American people believe is, is false. They're not aware that the CIA was doing mind experiments using drugs and torture to control and to experiment on American citizens. They don't see the effects of the drug war. They don't see 
how arresting people for nonviolent offenses affects their lives until they do. And when they do, that's when they get engaged. Now, I don't wish these evils on anybody. But you have to understand, or I have to understand, I have to put myself in the position of an average guy. And I happen to have the benefit, which I'm sure everybody does, of having these conversations with people that just don't see it, have never seen it. They've never experienced it. They don't have any affiliation with it. They don't relate to an Eric Garner because they've never had that experience. They go to the bar and they sell a a Lucy at the bar to some random guy and no cop chokes them to death, right? They, They don't see it as a problem. They're like, this doesn't really happen on a mass scale. This doesn't happen to the average person. This guy was a thug. He was in a bad position. He shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't have been doing this. He, should, he shouldn't be the person he is, right? For whatever reason, they don't see a class struggle. They don't see the division between the lower class and the middle class. They don't understand what it's like to have their neighborhoods policed as if a military force has invaded. They don't understand that. They don't see this. They don't see the debilitating structures and, and, and the, the crumbling infrastructure around them until they do, right? And so what happens when, when they do? Well, because they, were, they are made to believe, or they have always believed, that, that government is responsible for these things. That it's not the responsibility of the individual. Their responsibility is to go to work and finance the government. That's their responsibility. And these people that they're financing, these representatives and these representative structures, these systems that were put in place along the way were created for the benefit of the greater good. And as they were created for the benefit of the greater good, if you continue to finance them, they are going to work in favor of the greater good which means that it's only a minority of people that are being being harassed or being manipulated or being victimized by the government. It's a minority of people that this occurs to. It's always a minority of people, right? Like, you don't genocide the majority of your population. Okay? You, you attack a minority of the population. 
And so the greater good is the majority over the minority. It is pure democracy. This is what a democracy is. And I'm sorry if it, if it violates the rights or the lives of the minority to keep the majority safe, then it must be just because that's the system in which we, we live. That's the system that was put together to ensure that there was an equality in the justice system. And that there was an equality among the people and that these, every person has the equal opportunity to work and to earn money and to go to the grocery store and to benefit from these full shelves and to buy a house and to experience this American dream, to go to college. And when you start and until it's them that is victimized by this their focus will always be on just doing their part because this is a team that they're part of. The, the government is, is working for the team. You know, the government's the backstop for the team to make, th- make sure things don't get out of control. And they don't see all the things that we are looking at. And until the majority of information that's being spread around opens their eyes or until they're victimized by this system that's in place, they're not going to change their minds. They're going to say, yeah, that's fucking horrible. But really, I mean, how widespread is it? Really, how, how, how bad is it? You can name names. You know, what was it? Stalin, I think it was Stalin who said that one death is a tragedy but a million is a statistic. They see Eric Garner as a, as a tragedy, not as a statistic. It's not the status quo. That's not the standard operating procedure. It's just a tragedy. And you know, what are you going to do? What can you do? Hopefully it never happens again. And I don't know if there is a way that we can make a difference, make inroads in that position, except for continuing to spread information as best we can. But doing it in such a way that it doesn't come across as forceful yet just informative in not allowing our frustrations and our biases to get in the way of understanding the status quo 
the those that continuously operate within the system those that continue to promote the system because they don't see it as an evil they see it as a good or as a necessity because what what does it mean to not have it what evils are going to take place if it doesn't exist who's going to stop the bad guy and who's going to ensure that our shelves are full and if and if we have to depend on each other to create these full shelves how will the nature of humanity react will human nature fall back to more barbaric times or will it be continue to act in in a civilized manner does the status quo really hurt that bad because they don't see it in their lives it's not their reality so when when examining these things when communicating with these people it's really hard to ensure that we're giving the proper information and giving them that that piece of information that affects their psyche. I wonder I guess I fear more than anything. I fear for my kids more so than I do for myself that it's going to take something extraordinary, more extraordinary than the 2008 recession, more extraordinary than that financial collapse for these people to come to terms with the idea that liberty is more just and more secure than the status quo, than the centralization. Maybe it's going to be a total collapse of the financial system, complete and utter destruction of life as we know it. Maybe it's going to take a famine of sorts. I was listening to um, That's alright, Pinky. I was listening to a podcast that 
uh, a previous guest, Gord, had turned me on to the other day, The Fall of Civilizations. And uh, they were talking about the uh, the fall of Britannia under Rome. And the the guy who, who did the podcast, he referred to this as the British, I think he called it the British problem. And uh, what, he, what he was saying was when Rome was in charge of Brit- Britain, in the, I guess it was the second century, first century, second century. Something like first century, I guess. Um, that what would happen was when the emperor and the politic was in distress and was looking weak, the governor of Britain would take his entire fleet, every ship he had, every soldier he had and he would go down and invade Rome but what that did was it left a vacuum in in Britain for which hordes of barbarians the Saxons and the Franks and uh the Scots and all these barbaric tribes would invade and cause destruction on the island because there was no army there to protect the masses. And it seems almost to some degree that the United States has solved this problem that they've created such a large military that they never have to send the entire fleet that there's always a backstop and that the forces of local control have grown to such a degree that it never leaves insecurity at home that there's no chances of invading forces and therefore it seems to me like there would be, it would be a much more difficult prospect to create the insecurity in government to look for these large scale changes and that you will continue to get the status quo until there is such a disaster to create these large-scale changes. 
and the only it's the only disaster I can see in the future would be financial. That they'll continue to lie and be corrupt and to run up and and debt finance these wars and these social programs continue to claim that no that the debt can be paid and that the debt will not bankrupt the US until foreign nations first lose their confidence in the monetary system. Once the foreign nations lose their confidence in the monetary system, they begin to try to sell back their bonds and receive their debt payments. That's when you be, you'll begin to see rather than a global recession or a global depression, you'll be you'll begin to see a very centralized recession and depression. You'll you'll start to experience the hyperinflation that that countries like Venezuela have. And it also makes me wonder when you start looking at it that way, that it's the global market that holds up the U.S., that it holds up the U.S. dollar, that holds up the U.S. economy. I begin to contemplate this idea of the new world order as it was always advertised and whether or not it can ever truly be defeated. I mean, as we've seen with Trump and Obama and I, and I I bring Obama into this um, because I believe there was an aspect of Obama being elected, obviously, that was about his race. But there is this other aspect of Obama being elected that he was an outsider. He was an unknown quantity. Nobody really knew who he was. People knew who Hillary Clinton was. And it's kind of like you saw the same thing in 2016 on the Democrat side too because there was this Bernie Sanders character that just appeared he was kind of an unknown quantity and you had even libertarians and people that believe in free market were like well I mean he's better than Hillary you know or I like what he's saying about you know this 
or or I like what he's saying about that. And so there's this there's this whole phenomenon happening right now where the excitement is around those that aren't status quo that are unknown quantities. Um, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, I think I think the other lady's name was Marianne Williamson, Beto O'Rourke. You have these pockets of these unknowns that people are getting really excited about. And you see that like Biden is leading in the polls. But nobody's excited about Biden. Nobody's passionate about Biden. Biden is leading in the polls as a known quantity in such a way that it's like you start to realize all the chatter is around the unknowns. But all the momentum remains with the status quo. And that the unknown quantity of Obama led to more of the same. Just like the unknown quantity of Trump has truly led to more of the same. There has been very little changes. There has been no significant recognition of daily life changing for the majority of Americans. And people recognize that. And they realize my life just keeps going on. It keeps going the same way it's always been going. And they, the Federal Reserve has the monetary system under control. And the government are a bunch of corrupt assholes. But, yeah, they've always been a bunch of corrupt assholes. And my life's still going all right. So it doesn't, they, they view it as it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah, you're upset about it. I see what your point is. You made good points. But eh, it doesn't really fucking matter. They've been hearing since the 80s that running up debt was going to destroy the country. But it hasn't. Debt's $22 trillion now. Nothing bad's happened. We had a recession, but we added to the debt to get out of the recession. So the debt must not be a problem. We've been hearing that inflation is a bad thing. But for the most part, our income keeps up with the rate of inflation. Quantitative easing is a pretty remarkable thing, and you can't discount its benefit to the uh, American public and to GDP and to our economy. So, yeah, you know, debt sucks, but could be worse. 
could be out of a job, could be broke. The money could have no value, could live in Venezuela. So the fear becomes, do we have to be on the verge of a mass famine, of a mass financial collapse, of our children's future being completely destroyed, of our grandchildren's future being completely destroyed, to have a come-to-Jesus moment on a mass scale? Because as long as half of the American people, if not more, are content with the system that's in place, there will be no changes. And all of us who say, well, just give us a plot of land and let us experiment, we'll just be shrugged off. You're a minority. What are you going to do about it? No, no, we're just going to keep doing what we do. We're just going to act like you don't even exist because your voice isn't big enough. Your influence isn't big enough. There's no reason to change anything. The status quo works just fine. Always has, always will. And you people are are over-exaggerating. Or, you know, you're radicals or, you know, revolutionaries. And we've seen what, what, that, what, what occurs whenever revolutionaries take charge of a country. You know? So, no, we're just going to keep on keeping on, chugging right along until one day we're not. And that's the real fear. That's the reason I podcast. That's why I write. That's why I take the time out of this hectic fucking day that I deal with day in and day out to talk about the things that I talk about. It's because maybe I have an opportunity to reach somebody that that maybe Pete can't reach. Now, Pete's audience is probably 20 times bigger than mine. Tom Wood's audience is a thousand times bigger than mine. Scott Horton's audience is a thousand times bigger than mine. But maybe I have that one piece, that one thought that opens a door, that just cracks the door just a little bit. Maybe. But unfortunately, I think for the most part, until the majority of the nation is uncomfortable. Nothing's going to change. Until the majority of a state cries out for secession, nothing's going to change. And it's disconcerting. It's frustrating. It's irritating, and I don't like that thought because I don't like what it means for my kids. I don't like what it means for my grandchildren, but 
it's quite possible that running against the wind is never going to get in, get us anywhere. I just felt like it was fair to chime in about this other side of the coin that I I don't really look at on a regular basis. I hope that maybe I said something that you can use or that resonates. And if not, I apologize. I just wasted 50 minutes of your time. But I'm Tommy Salmons. Late.